All right, you guys ready? When we finish up, we'll be through. We are we started in First Chronicles 19, right? Isn't that, isn't that correct? All right, what's on your mind about Chronicles? Remember what I told you about Chronicles a couple weeks ago when we talked about it, uh, the purpose of the book? Actually, Chronicles was all one book originally when it, was, when it was written. For some reason, they separated it. But what was it for? Anybody remember? Chronicles of Nine. <laughs> Actually, it was where Israel came back out of exile. So really, it's just an opportunity to come back and refresh their history, to remind the next generation, to, to record for the next generation how they got there. So they wouldn't lose process of who they were and where they came from. You know, the Israelites were huge on on passing things down through history, and they passed it. They did it orally with their children and their families. And so when they went into exile, that tradition was broken to some degree. And then as they started coming back into the land, then they 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 chronicled this stuff again. And really, it's just a redoing. It's a restating of Kings and Samuel in, in the early history when you when you read through it and look at it. And uh, some interesting things in here. Uh, there's a passage in 20 that deals with Philistine giants. And there was actually more giants than just Goliath. Now, we had a question about how big these people actually were. And some of the equipment they used was very heavy, so they must have been pretty good-sized guys. And there's one guy here with six fingers and toes on each hand each foot. And I don't know what's going on with that. But one thing you can keep in mind, and when we talk about giants, most historians that study that say the average Jewish man was about 4'10 to 5'2. They were not big people, period, in the world. So a guy 6'8 or 6'9 was a giant. Now, these people may have been much bigger than that, and I think Goliath probably was, and these were out of the same tribe. So you take a guy 5'2", and he's looking at a guy 7'5 or 7'6 and weighs 500 pounds, he, it's a difference. And even if you had two soldiers who were equally talented, if one's got a 20-pound sword and the other one's got a 5-pound sword and they meet, who's going to win just, just when the two instruments contact each other? So, But it was interesting. They killed all these giants with God's help again when you, when you look at that. And uh, they had brothers, yeah. They were, must have all been big, yeah. And a uh, big clan of people. And... Uh, and, uh, and again, he talks about the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. So it was, they were big, big men. Now, these probably were giants. But a lot of the, when the Israel reported back like giants in the land, it's not like Jack and the Beanstalk, what we think about. Okay, they might have been big guys, but it wasn't anything outside of, of, being, of reality to be able to, to look at that. And, uh, and the guy that had, 20, had six toes and six fingers said he descended from the giants. But when he taught in Israel, and look who killed him. Jonathan, son of David's brother, killed him. So, you know, these, these guys, when they run up to anything to do with David, it was bad news for the giants. They didn't, they didn't survive too long. All right, what else? What else is on your mind in Chronicles? Anything that disturbed you? What was he in trouble about? What, was that, what did I let the county? Yeah. What was the problem there? We, got, we discussed this a while ago. What do y'all think was the problem there? Right, this has Satan too. This is some versions have different. Now, why did David? I was looking. I thought I had seen one that said that God incited him to do it, and it's words of it. But it says Satan as well. That one does. Well, what did he get in trouble for doing it for? That's what I think is what's 
what's kind of interesting about this. What was the problem with counting the men? And what was the count for? You're right, but what, what, why would he... One thing keep in mind, from the last verse in 20 to the first verse in 21, there's about a 20-year gap in history there, if you, if you really look at it. So why would he have come out and counted his men? In essence, though, did what? Exactly. That's what he got in trouble for. Because, because David come out, and I think, like you said, he wanted to make sure he had enough. and He wanted to be able to say, I got two million soldiers. And God is saying, look, I told you I would take care of you. So it was just a break. It don't seem like that much to us. But it shows you how rigid God was, particularly in the Old Testament, when he, when he designed something a certain way. He meant for it to be that way. And as much as he loved David, and as much as he loved Israel, he wreaked havoc on these people. And, what, and David chose the plague. What happened with the plague he chose? Anybody remember from the reading? He chose one punishment. What happened? Where did I read that? 70,000 Israelites were killed, men. Now you think about a, a God, and that's his people, and for disobedience he allows 70,000 of them to die because he says, you sinned, and I can't let it go. And sometimes that helps me put a perspective on just how casual we become about things today. Now, thank God Jesus Christ is an inter intermediary there that allows us that grace. But at the same time, is God not just as displeased with our sin as he ever was? And, uh, and so when you look at this, it, it kind of it puts a new perspective on it. Yeah, and he had good advice. <laughs> and they said he didn't. He, he ignored him with no reason. I think that's another good statement in there, that he not only disagreed with him, he didn't even bother to, to reply to him or why he did. He got it in his mind that he wanted to number that army. And, and I think really when you look at it, if Satan did it to him, then who really let him do it? God really let Satan do it to him. So it's kind of hard to put your arms around that and go, okay, David sinned, so God lets him do this, and then God is able to come back and... That's probably a pride issue going on there with David, probably getting a little bit too big for his throne or something, you know. And and uh, and God leads him into this situation, but it's it's uh, it's kind of sometimes kind of disturbing to try and figure out exactly what's happening in this Old Testament when they're working through it. Yeah, didn't it? Wasn't, it wasn't even the young ones. And then he kind of gets into talking about he's starting to get prepared for the temple on over the last part of First Chronicles one. Any. Any particular questions in looking at any of that? Uh, it's a pretty good, uh, some good stuff in chapter 28 where it kind of gets into where David finally realizes he can't build the temple and he commissions his son Solomon to do it. And he gave him the plans for it and, and as they're preparing for this to, to come into being. And again, that was God that told David, I'm not going to let you do it. And David is actually the one that wanted to do it. And uh, and God wouldn't wouldn't allow him to. It, it was it was it was part of manhood. I mean, you know, and it was a serious thing. And and uh, and you know, we read through that, and you see a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, and you read over it. But all those things had really m much meaning in there. I mean, there was there was a lot of things going on that small stuff that we might read over today. That uh, yeah, I, I forgot. Uh, there's a famous famous line that Spurgeon used with that one time that somebody said something about his beard and he, he was a young man and he replied with that line somehow in a big preacher's conference and they couldn't believe he said it.
we move on into Second Chronicles, if y'all don't have anything else in First Chronicles. Now, we get in more to Solomon, and particularly the passage where he requests wisdom. That's a, that's a passage that's very well known to us. Uh, you know, basically, basically what happens? He goes, God comes to him and says, tell me what you need. Tell me what you want. And, and you know, and Solomon is smart enough to say, give me the wisdom to rule the kingdom. And, uh, and then God says, what in return? Because of this, I'm going to what? The health and wealth guys love this passage. <laughs> they say, well, they say, but he said, I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you more than you ever had. You're going to be greater than anybody that's ever been like you. And, and Solomon was probably dollar for dollar still probably maybe the richest man that was ever on. I mean, if you start reading all that he had and it starts talking about it a little bit and all he was accumulated, something kind of interesting about him. He goes into these massive building programs. What is the one... What is one of the downsides of Solomon that he got into? I mean, that he was known for. And I'm not talking about the problem with with the women and the wives. But he had something that got to be a a, a stickler for him that that he kind of he got an ego about all these building projects and what he was doing. He became a very hard on his servants, very hard. He demanded a lot. He worked them hard. He moved them for long periods of time. And, uh, and so he became known as a very hard taskmaster. He accomplished a lot of things, but a lot of it was at the expense of his, of, his, of his servants and of his people that he was ruling over. And particularly when he started building this temple, it says he counted all the foreigners. So he was particularly hard on you if you were not an Israelite, even though you lived in his land. And uh, the, the, the building projects, you can go through them. They're just, they're just massive when you start talking about everything that, uh, that he accomplished and, and the amount of money that he brought in. And when it really gets to talking about it on over in the, the next passage, some. And, of course, you know, supplying for them. And, and, uh, and, and God let him do it. I mean, God let him do whatever he wanted to pretty much. And there was pretty much, I, I uh, did a study on that one time, and I was just thinking, he was really one of the few people in the world that could get up every day, and there was nothing that he couldn't have. I mean, even travel time, he had horses and animals from all over the world, even in that day and time. And you, you just think about, and he goes through a process where he tries all these different things in life. It's in Ecclesiastes where he gets back, and, you know, he runs the whole course. And when it's all over and said and done, he said, I've had the ability to look at all of it and one of the things that I pointed out about that, I said, none of us will ever be able to live life to the extent he did. And yet, as wise as he was at the end, he says, is all this dust. It, it wasn't worth anything. And so there's a real good lesson in that to look at that because, you know, if you think about his riches and his availability to do anything he wanted to do, really, and, and to come back and, and at the end and say, just, you know, to obey God. And just and wasted a lot in the in the process of it. But now the temple he built was by God's design, so that was that was uh. And, and so whatever it took to do that is what what God requested him to do there. And actually, from what David passed along to him. So, again, in Chronicles, you just have a regoing of this when you get into Second Chronicles, particularly. It, it's just it's just documenting everything that happened. And, and fills you in on, on, on what's going on in that period of time. I think we're over to about Second Chronicles. Uh, 
what, what was the passage there where we stopped? The Second Chronicles 6. Anything else in there? It's kind of a lot of the stuff we've been over already in the sense of the word, but it, it's just a refresher. All right, let's flip on over to Romans then. We are in a book now that we could spend a lifetime in. I know a lot of y'all have probably studied through it, and most uh, people have been studying the book of Romans for centuries. Most pastors and most theologians say that if they could have one book out of the Bible, that would be the one that they would take. Anybody know why? Why is Romans such an important book? It really does what? What does Paul do with the book of Romans? He writes it to Rome. Anybody know why he's writing it to, why he writes this letter to Rome? He's never been there, and he didn't start the church there. Couldn't be any more clear on that. He's, he really doesn't know about the status of this church, so he writes a theological treatise to them, basically. He gives them every aspect of faith from the start for 12, like I say, 11 chapters. In chapter 12, anybody know what the first word in chapter 12 is? Therefore, which means now. I've told you in 11 chapters what this looks like. Now, this is what you're supposed to do with it. That's why Romans is so critical. It, it gives you the faith from the first aspect of it to the end of it, and then Paul says, now you need to present yourself to God as a sacrifice and, uh, and, and do that. I've got a commentary that talks a little bit about just some of the things we find in Romans, and I'm only going to cover just a little bit of it, but it's pretty interesting when you start thinking about how much is in this book. And it said, uh, this book quotes the Old Testament 57 times more than any other New Testament book. It repeatedly used uh, keywords like God 154 times, law 77 times, Christ 66 times, sin 45 times, Lord 44 times, and faith 40 times. Romans answers many questions concerning man and God. And here's just a few of them. There's about 50 of these, and I'm not going to read them all. Questions like, what is the good news of God? Is Jesus really God? What is God like? How can God send people to hell? Why do men reject God and his son, Jesus Christ? Why are there false religions and idols? What is man's biggest sin? Why are there sexual perversions, hatred, crime, dishonesty, and all the other evils in the world? And why are they so permissive and rampant? What is the standard by which God condemns people? Then on over here some more. Do Jews have a greater responsibility than Gentiles? What is a true Jew? Is your inner spiritual advantage to being Jewish? How good is a man in himself? How evil, is a, how evil is a man in himself? Can any person help God's law perfectly? That's just a few of about 50 or 60 questions that, that Romans digs into. And here's a couple things down here. I like the way he summed this up. He said, it speaks morally about adultery, fornication, homosexuality, hating, murder, lying, and, and civil disobedience. It speaks intellectually, telling us that the natural man is confused because he has a reprobate mind. It speaks socially, telling us how we are to relate to one another. It speaks psychologically, telling us where true freedom comes to deliver man from the burden of guilt. It speaks nationally, telling us our responsibility to human government. It speaks internationally, telling us that the ultimate destiny of the earth, and especially the future of Israel. It speaks spiritually, answering man's despair by offering hope for the future. It speaks theologically, teaching us that the relationship between the flesh and the spirit, between law and grace, and between faith and works. But most of all, it profoundly brings God himself to us, is what you said. And that's why this book is so critical. When he was talking to the Romans, 
He said, I don't know what you know and don't know, so I'm going to give you the whole package. And he did. And then, and, and, and then as we wade through this and, and listen, <laughs> there is a million theological points in here that we can, we can dig into. But, uh, but it was a, it's a critical book in the faith to deal with because it deals with issues in black and white and it spells things out for us so we can get a handle on them and deal with them. Any particular questions? We went about Romans 2 to about Romans 7, right? Isn't that correct? 7 13 was the last. I don't know that I can answer them all, but we'll look for them. I can't teach this verse by verse like Lyle yet. So, <laughs> One of the passages that I was looking at in chapter 2, I think starts at about verse 17 down through about verse 24. And it's talking about the Jewish violation of the law. And uh, one of the footnotes I've got on there, he's kind of addressing religious moralists here. These were people who, like the Pharisees, were living a strict life according to the law, living the way they were supposed to live, and yet it was just religion. It, 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 Christ wasn't involved in it. And so he, he, uh, he addresses those issues, and he gets into talking about circumcision of the heart following that, which means... Outwardly and physically, it doesn't matter what you're doing if the heart hasn't been changed. And you find that you find that theme all the way through here. He keeps coming back to that, and he keeps coming back to to, to the to the heart issue when when he's dealing with men. And uh, in verse uh, verse 29, he said, "On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, but the, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God." So again, he's talking about, he said, because people were discussing whether to be a Jew or not be a Jew by circumcision and by following the rules. And he's calling, by, he said, by Jew, and he's talking a believer. He said, you're a Jew by what happens in the heart and by what God does in you. And so he keeps that, he keeps that, uh, that constant of law and works out there versus, versus the grace of God. And so remember now, he, he's, he doesn't know these people. He, he doesn't particularly know that they're all tangled up in this law and works thing, but he's just making sure. He's just giving them the rundown to say this and this and this and this and this. When he gets there, he wants them to already know what it is. And what, what was the reason he wanted to go? Did anybody know why he was so adamant to go to Rome and so adamant to have these people where, you know, already functioning like they were supposed to function when he got there? You might remember from your reading, it may say it in here and it may not, but he had a purpose in mind. Paul always had a plan. He really didn't want to go to Rome just to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome to go on to Spain. He wanted Rome to be his support and his base so he could evangelize into Spain. So he knew they had a church there, but he wanted to be able to use them, so he said, I don't know what kind of shape they're in. I didn't start it. I don't know what they believe. And so... He writes this letter to them in preparation. I mean, he, in a sense, he's telling them about himself and what he believes. He's telling them the faith as God has given it to him. And, and there's a dual purpose. He wants them to know what he believes. And in essence, he's telling them this is how you ought to live your life because that's what he does in chapter 12. He gives them all this, and he says, Now, this is what you need to do. You know, 1 through 11 tells you what it looks like. 12 tells you how to do it. It says, Do it. Same thing with James. That's the reason James is a tough book to study because the rest of the Bible talks about faith and James says, oh, by the way, if you're really doing this, this is what it looks like. I mean, this is physically feet on the ground what it looks like when you live like you're supposed to live. 
And that's harder to deal with sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because of the way you're acting and what you're doing. Because you don't have it right. And you're trying, and you know, we're trying to spread this gospel to them, and, and they were excluding some of them and wasn't living right. Exactly right. God, not law and works, is one of the things we keep in mind here as we look at it. Uh, chapter 3, Paul answers of, of an objection. This is, this is kind of an interesting little passage. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerably in every way. First, they are entrusted with the spoken words of God. Now, he says the Jews got an advantage because they got to hear the words of God firsthand. And then he said, uh, what then? If some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. God must be true, but everyone is a liar as it, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumphs when you judge. And he's talking about Jesus to the cross here, you know. He said, but if our unrighteousness highlights God, God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. If God's un if God Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how would God judge the world? But if by, but if by my lie God's truth is amplified to his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim to say, let us do evil so that good may come, the condemnation is deserved. What did they mean by that? Let us do evil that good may come. He's kind of doing a play on words here. But he's saying, you know, some of you are actually doing what? Yeah, and there's a purpose to it. He, he's kind of saying here, I think, if you do more, God has to put more grace into it. You know, and so he's saying, it's, it's almost like Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, he did a wrong thing to accomplish what he thought might be a higher and better thing. And that's not a good example, but he did a wrong thing to get Jesus in a position where he thought he would have to conquer and divide, and that wasn't what Jesus' purpose was. And so, and Paul's kind of saying here, you know, he said, some of you are acting like the worse I am, the greater God looks because he has to give more grace. And he said, no, that's wrong. But so that, that was all kind of different, different things going on in the mind and the process here. But you have to remember at this point, Paul is just talking to them. He don't know them. So he's just, he's just doing all these arguments with them as he writes this letter for them to read. And it's kind of like trying to explain something to a group of people you've never seen yet. And, then, and that's what he's doing. So, But uh, it, you can get turned around in here sometimes, and, and, and I do it every time I get through it. Verse 21 in chapter 3, But now apart from the law of God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the prophets. The, one of the big things they did here, for verse 23 is a critical verse, and we know that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the great verse for, for, for the world right there. All have sinned. I mean, that's one of the critical verses in Rome, Romans. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so again, we get into this process of, uh, of God trying to get us to understand that everybody is in the same boat. That not the Jew, not the Gentile, not what you do, not the law. And they had this, they had this play with the law. They were, they were legalists to death. And of course, we see that with the Jewish people everywhere. And they were having a hard time turning that loose. And so the argument they were presenting, is the law bad? If, if, if following the law doesn't get us where we need to go, is the law bad? And he's saying no. Because he says over in one passage, I forgot where it was, he said, without the law, I wouldn't understand what covet means. But because of the law, I know I'm guilty. 
And so he actually says the law is not the problem. It's you trying to live by the law only. And, uh, and so, again, you watch that argument as Romans starts developing and he deals with that. Let me look here just a minute and see if we can find. Considering the way they've been, considering everything they did, God had told them to do in the beginning. That's one of the problems. And uh, he said, on, one of the, when he kind of ends that verse there in 31, he said, we cancel the law through faith. And he said, absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He said, faith doesn't take the law away. What he said, I come to not, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, because of the law, because I'm here now, this is fulfilling. And it, it is tough for them. I mean, they're, they're making a major transition because you have a group of people that has been schooled and trained all their, for generations to do a certain thing, and God killed them in the Old Testament when they didn't do it. So it's kind of like an old dog. If you whip him every time he does something wrong, you're not going to change that after five years real easy because he's going He's going to remember that. And, and, and so you know, Paul is trying to get them to, to understand that with the coming of Christ, everything has changed. But it's not that what they have is bad, but it's just fulfilled into the next phase of what they're doing. Verse, uh, verse 29, continuing in chapter 3, there, it's pretty, he said, Or is God for Jews only, or is he just for Gentiles? Yes, for Gentiles too, since there is one God who will, t who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. So it's a really great verse there because he said there's one God and he's going to justify everybody that he knows, whether you're Jew, circumcised, or uncircumcised. And basically what he means, whether you follow the law or where you came up out from under the law, it doesn't matter. And uh, do we then cancel the law through faith? And that's where he picks up again that verse I just read. So he's making that clarification there that, that the law in itself is not bad, but the law is only part of, of, of getting us where they need to think about Christ being the sole purpose of us of our salvation. Then in verse 5, he, he kind of digs into some things uh, looking through here, and he, he kind of gets back to dealing with Adam and life through Christ. And so we kind of get back into, into verse 12 down there. And of course, we, we all know this verse. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all have sinned. That is a hard pill to get a lot of people today to swallow. Who said I'm a sinner? By what right do you look at me and say that I'm a sinner? You don't know what I do. It don't matter what you do. It's what Adam did. <laughs> and, and, and some people struggle with that, particularly in today's society when you're trying to get people to, to look at that. And again, he talks about all of sin. In fact, sin was in the world before the law. Now, this is pretty interesting. But sin is not charged to one's account when there was no law. Somebody want to explain that? He said, sin's in the world, but it's not charged to you before there was a law. There was sin before the law. There was sin. No, no. There was sin before the law, but it wasn't charged to them. And that's kind of an interesting verse when you talk about, you know, we get to thinking we've all been, you couldn't be guilty of something there wasn't a law against, just like she said. If you're driving down the road and there's no speed limit on it, you can't be guilty of breaking the speed limit. So God really didn't hold them accountable from the way I read it and what I can find come to it until he gave the law, like she said with Abraham. It wasn't really, he wasn't held in account for not doing things that God wanted him to do. I mean, he, sin, and see, sin can exist. Sin, sin was in the world is what he's saying. But he doesn't talk about whether or not the man sinned, but if a man sinned, 
from the passage says it was not charged to him. And, I, and that's a good one for us to go dig up this week because I'm still, I've been looking at it and studied it and I'm still not sure. We'll, we'll tag Lyle with that and see what he says. But it's kind of like until he established the law, there wasn't anything he could, he, would, he couldn't hold you responsible of something that he hadn't made a law for yet. Well, you would think he is because he, he cursed him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, had he, had the law been in place, what would have happened to him? They'd have killed him. They'd have stoned him to death. So, I, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah, I think what happened there was the sin was real and the sin happened. But until he got to this point, God kept it in check. In other words, he didn't charge it against them at the time because he was coming to a point to where had Abraham not believed, I think he would have been charged against him as sin. But at a point in time, you know, and if you really think about the whole Old Testament, what did God do with sin until Jesus came? Because Jesus paid the price for all sin. So until Jesus came, God was, God was just checking that sin up. I mean, he was, he was mercifully looking over it until a point in time when it could be paid for. And I kind of think that's what he's trying to say here is that, that it wouldn't be in charge to him. But in a point in time when the law came in, then you had to deal with it. And you'd see the sacrificial system and everything coming in. God said, now this is what you have to do now because of sin. But up until that time, it's kind of like he just stacked it up on a shelf and said, I hadn't forgot it, and it has to be paid for. But because I don't have a rule for you to follow, because I don't have a way for you to deal with it, I can't charge it to you right now. That's, that's the way I interpret it, and, and, and I may not be just exactly right on that, but it's along those lines because he's not charging them with a sin because he didn't tell them, he didn't establish anything to say this is wrong. He's trying to bring it all back to that, that, that God is the answer. I mean, law, no law, like I say, circumcision, no sin, sin looks over sin, but faith and obedience washes it clean and keeps it clean. And... Uh, I think that's the point he's trying to drive home here in, in looking at that. But uh, that is a tough passage to deal with there But when you're looking at it. And look at verse 14, just following it. He said, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin, like the likeness of Adam's transgression. So he said, even though during all that time until Moses, until people still died. Just uh, uh, chapter 5, same place, just down there in verse 14, following up verse 12. But he was talking about, the, yeah, the verse 13, he's talking about where the sin was not charged to the account. And then in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin. So he said, even those who were not guilty during that time, they still died because sin brought death into the world. So they were subject to it because of the sin condition. And then, you know, he gets to a point to where he hands the law down and he says all people are guilty because of what, what one man did. And that's what he's trying to get them to understand here when he don't. But one of the notes that I wrote on here a while back, and I don't remember it, said, but you can't break a law that don't exist. It's kind of a take that I, that I, I was pulling off of that. And verse 20 is a, in chapter 5 is a verse we often hear a lot. It said, the law came along to multiply the trespass. In other words, to magnify it, to show what was sin but where sin multiplied grace multiplied even more that's where they got into that passage a minute ago and saying do more sin so that the grace will be multiplied and God will look better 
So there was all kind of distorted ideas about how to live through this faith life. But we're, And then just as that sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so again, he gets back to that. He said, the unrighteous brought death, and he's talking about spiritual death there. And, and again, he's just walking them through this process. Anything else, chapter 5, chapter 6, we're about to end to where we need to go there. I know there's a million things that we could talk about forever. Chapter 7, verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? He goes through this whole discussion again. He does an illustration up there with marriage. That's not a passage particularly on marriage. It's an illustration about, about sin. He said, on, absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. So he said he, he, makes, he makes an appeal for the law. He says, don't think that the law now is not worthy or that the law is bad. But because of the law, I see clearly who I am. I see clearly what I did wrong. And Christ is the answer for that. So again, you get back to that New Testament passage where Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. I come to fulfill it. And that's what's taking place here. Paul's trying to get them to understand it's not the law. It's not what you do and don't do. We still are bad about that today. You know, I mean, sometimes we like to check this stuff off, and that's good. We ought, to, we ought to be, you know, we ought to have priorities, and we ought to make sure that we're at church. We ought to make sure that we study and we pray and we do those things. But if we do them just for the check marks, then we're doing the wrong thing because we're really, if we're not careful, we're doing it a little more on the legal side, and we feel good because I got my devotion in this morning. But did you meet God in your devotion this morning? That's, that's the key when we're looking at these things, I think. And he says, do not covet. And that's one of the things he said. He said, I would have not known what it was to covet if the law had said, do not covet. Great example. Great place to stop there. He just simply said, the law taught me what's right and what's wrong. And the law gives me something to hold on to. And the law gives me a place to go and say, that's wrong. And, and so he's actually praising the law, but he's building it in the process of the grace of Christ here. He's not leaving any room for you to, to go by the law. And so, you know, there was this constant struggle with Jews and Gentiles. Now, you know, Rome was a big city. It was, and there was Jews there and there was Gentiles there. So there was probably all kinds of discussions about what you had to do or not do to be a Christian. And some said you had to do all the Jewish stuff to be a Christian. So he's, he's just laying the groundwork to get this straightened out through here. Anything else right there tonight? That's where we stop in Rome, Romans for this week. Anything in Psalms or Proverbs? We're repeating now. I won't keep you there if you don't have anything particularly you want to talk about. I think we're all going back through those again, Psalms 11 through Psalms 17.5. I kind of got a verse highlighted here in 11 in Psalms that I've had highlighted in about every Bible I got, uh, starting in verse 5 in, chapter, in, in Psalms 11. The Lord examines the righteous and the wicked, and he hates the lover of violence. And this kind of just gives me a description of God sometimes. It kind of wakes me up. He'll rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. A scorching wind will be their portion. For, for the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds, and the upright will see his face. Just all through here, to me, you find this, you find this picture of God that says, I hate evil. I mean, he don't just not like it. He hates evil. And, uh, and you know, there's going to come a day when he's going to deal with that, and we're going to stand in judgment of that. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> We don't want to go there. (laughs) 
probably have some in here that could. It's a diabetic psalm. No, I'm, I'm not going there. Not fear about anything. What about Proverbs? Proverbs 19.10 through 19.23. I had one in there, I think. Uh, verse 14. A house and wealth is inherited from fathers, but a sensible wife is from the Lord. Pretty good. Amen. There's also a bunch of Proverbs in there about wives, too. <laughs> and husbands, too. So. <laughs> but I just thought that was pretty good. That is true. God knows what we need to keep us out of trouble and keep us straight. Anybody else before we go? Well, if I hadn't answered your question, write it down and hand it to me, and we'll look for it this week. Uh, we'll, we'll try to find it. So. But anyway, appreciate you guys. We're through about 10 minutes early, if that's okay. And thank you very much.